I think a lot of people have that fear, right? Of like, because I have an insecure attachment, I'm going to mess up my child. Or because I was traumatized, I'm going to pass that on. But I think actually just even being aware of your past is, you know, you're like, you're probably in the 1% of people who are actually really reflecting on who they are as a parent and where they come from. And like, I think people need to not use all of this theory to beat themselves up with and to shame themselves and to have so much fear because the theory is there to help us and to help us improve and grow and like, yeah, give ourselves a break. Today, we are tackling attachment patterns in relationships, and we're going to be breaking down the similarities and the differences in how attachment patterns show up in the early stages of romantic relationships versus the early days of parenthood. How can we as parents conscientiously explore our triggers and our early childhood experiences? How does this exploration reshape the foundational blueprints that dictate our expectations of how the world's going to respond to our needs? and our emotions, and how does that translate into the way we parent? Joining me today is the author of the new book, Your Pocket Therapist. She's an expert in the field of attachment theory, psychotherapist Dr. Annie Zimmerman. Dr. Zimmerman and I will dive into how we can interrupt our reactions that stem from insecure attachments that no longer serve us, and use tools for starting a new journey of self-discovery and personal growth. Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Bren, a clinical psychologist and mom of two. In this podcast, I've taken all of my clinical experience, current research on brain science and child psychology, and the insights I've gained on my own parenting journey, and distilled everything down into easy to understand and actionable parenting insights, so you can tune out the noise and tune into your own authentic parenting voice with confidence and calm. This is Securely Attached. Hello, welcome. So today we have a really amazing guest, Dr. Annie Zimmerman. And this is a little bit different than what we usually talk about because we're going to be talking about, of course, attachment theory. But in the context of our relationships with our adult people in our lives, and I think that that has so many implications for how we parent. So Annie, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. You um you have this really incredible uh, social media platform where you talk a lot about what feels just like very accessible, bite-sized, um, like easy to both relate to, but also implement like bits and pieces of attachment and your insights and relationships. Like, can you talk a little bit about how you how you got into this particular area of focus? Yeah, of course. Um... So I come from a family of therapists. Um, every woman in my family is a therapist. <laughs> All my aunts, my mom, my sister, my grandma was the first person to study psychology at uni in the UK, or like one of the first women, sorry. Um, so I've been brought up on psychology and and have constantly been learning um, through my family, but also through my like years of study. Um, and I just felt that everything that I'd been through in therapy wasn't being adequately reflected on Instagram therapy. I've always been a big fan of Instagram therapy and I've like turned to it um, specifically when I'm having relationship problems and you know, you're in the middle of the night and you're upset and you want to understand the dynamics that are going on. Um, but then when I started to go through therapy myself I and, and train, I thought actually a lot of the 
real depth and the real nuance is being lost. Um, mm-hmm. and I'm a bit of a place of just like positivity and motivational quotes and all of that's really lovely. But I felt that people are yearning as you know, the younger generations are engaging more with their mental health and people are starting to really reflect and want to learn. People are yearning for depth. Um, but to do that in a way that's not academic and fusty, but is actually bite-sized and easy to digest, but still holding the complexity, um, I guess is my aim. That's why I've called it Your Pocket Therapist, which is the name of my channel and the name of my book, because it's like taking the insights that people learn in therapy um, and bringing them to people who might not be able to access therapy so that they're they're learning and they're getting the education of the deep psychological processes that are going on and getting to understand themselves on a deep level but without it feeling like work or you know without it feeling like paragraphs and paragraphs of theories um so yeah that's kind of my mission really yeah and it seems like people resonate with that like you you are speaking to people and they are listening yeah. So, um, honestly, like I am my target audience. I'm like a chronic user of Instagram therapy. So I think maybe that's why it resonates because I will only post something if it's something that I would have been interested in. Um, and I think also talking about relationships, I think so relate, you know, relationships are a minefield at the best of times, but in this modern dating world and landscapes and kind of how everything is changing. Um, I think people are just so confused as to what's going on and are really wanting some understanding and some tools to bring into their relationships with which that they can actually find what they're looking for. Cause I think so many people are desperate for connection and intimacy and, um, are struggling with that, whether it's in finding a partner or in a struggling to find that with their existing partner. Yeah. I, I do. And I, it's funny because like I obviously, you and I probably work with slightly different populations generally, right? Like I work with a lot of parents, people that are already like they've, they're done dating. They found the person that they want to spend the rest of their life with. They're building a family and they're finding it super hard. And there's something about building a life with a partner, you know, and having kids that can activate sort of a lot of attachment, old attachment stuff that like I imagine dating also activates, right? Like that ambiguity and uncertainty when you're trying to find a new person, you know, like connect with someone, that that's a really challenging time just in the developmental timeline, right? Because there's so much uncertainty and it when we're uncertain, it activates our attachment systems, right? Because attachment systems are threat responses. And there's something about raising a small child and being so vulnerable and, and, you know, being kind of in this place of like, our relationships are often under a lot of stress in those early years of parenting. And so again, our attachment systems kind of get activated really easily. So there's like, what are there parallels to that that you have noticed or think about at all? Yeah, definitely. Well, I think that the early years of, I mean, I'm not a mother, but I've, I've heard um, from lots of people and in my clinical practice that the early years of being a mother can trigger a lot of your own childhood wounds that you weren't even aware of. One of the stories I write about in the book is about um, a man who is going to be a father for the first time. His wife is pregnant um, and suddenly he gets this depression and he's not sure why he's been kind of a happy person his whole life. And it turns out through therapy that he realizes that actually 
the pregnancy of his wife has triggered the birth of his younger sister, which was a traumatic birth and it took a lot of the attention away from his parents and it was like a trauma that he just hadn't processed or thought about and I think it's really common that when people become mothers for the first time they're suddenly confronted with you know memories of what it was like for them to be a baby and how you know their own mothering or difficulties with their own their own childhood so I think that those early years can definitely trigger a lot and it's the same as you say in the early stages of a relationship because the, the more insecure the relationship is the more we're triggered and therefore it's always the most insecure at the beginning so I think anything new and uncertain and in a way it's a new relationship as a mother you're meeting this this thing and it's a new version of yourself right um mm-hmm. so I think yeah I, I think it's really interesting to think of that as being an attachment alarm as well as when you're entering motherhood for the first time Yeah. I mean, it makes you think too of this idea of matrescence, which is like another stage of development, right? We enter into this part of our development when we have kids or patrescence for dads, but and and adolescence, it's like a kind of as volatile as adolescence just later in life. And we have a few more resources, you know, like cognitively, hopefully by then. But like, yeah, I'm curious too, because like young adulthood is a time when typically there's like some stability in all the development, except when it comes to like finding a partner, then I think there's so much volatility and and a lot of like insecure ways of relating get like activated. So I like, I don't know why this made, that made me think of this, but like, I'm curious what your thoughts are too on like different types of points in our development where attachment becomes kind of way more, salient maybe like comes up to the surface more yeah it's interesting I guess as a teenager and when you start separating emotionally from your parents and becoming independent attachments probably also really triggered then because then you're attaching to your friends and you start romantic encounters in the first for the first time in your life and you need those new attachment relationships to kind of separate healthily from your parents so I actually imagine it's evolving throughout um I was also just thinking of, um, I guess I work maybe more with, or online, certainly my following is mostly women in their like late twenties and and thirties. Um, and that's a time where I think people are particularly urgent to find a partner because they're by, especially women, their biological clock is ticking. And especially in, in their thirties, it's like, oh no, like, I can't believe I'm not where I thought I was. And then they often will choose a partner who's, or stay in a relationship that's not healthy, where they're miserable and try to make things work because they're so desperate to have a child and have a family. And I think um, the kind of, the ending of that phase of life and the beginning of the life that they want as a mother um, can actually mean that they make decisions and that they make, they kind of act out of fear, um, which is a whole other, other problem for them, I guess. Yeah. And when you work with those those individuals, like what do you do with them to help them notice their attachment patterns? Like what are some of the things, like if someone who's listening is like whether or not they're looking to date or they're currently, you know, in a, in, you know, a relationship, um, when you notice that your attachment systems are getting activated, mm-hmm. like one, what are you as a therapist looking for to identify, okay, I think this is something worth looking at together. Mm-hmm. And then what do we do to kind of build insight around that? Mm-hmm. 
I guess the the first step for me would be to track back as I mean in the book there's like five steps that I outline which aren't linear by any measure but they're just kind of a guideline as to different processes you would go through if you are getting triggered and you want to change your responses so if we take like anxious an anxious attachment for example the first step really is just to be curious with yourself um because I think we can be really critical we're like oh I'm being so needy and uh like lots of shame I've like I'm freaking out what's wrong with me why can't I be chill um and actually that doesn't help us to grow and it doesn't help us to have compassion for ourselves so I think curiosity would be my first step and as a therapist I'm always thinking like okay where is this really coming from what's actually happening here um is is their attachment system activated if so why what happened in their early years that would have meant that you know separation and space was so unbearable um then the second step is to understand. So then to start to reflect on your memories of your early childhood and childhood in general and um, other times throughout your life that this pattern, this, this reaction is coming up. So trying to understand for yourself, okay, when, what are my triggers? What is it that specifically makes me anxious? And how can I then use that awareness to prepare for like, okay, I know that for example, when my partner doesn't reply for a few hours, I freak out. And knowing that that's a pattern and a trigger for you means that you can actually start to soothe yourself before it's even happened. Um, and the third is to feel, and I think this is really essential, um, especially for intellectualizers like me and probably you, um, that we're always understanding. Um, but actually often we just need to let ourselves move through whatever we're feeling. Um, so I think mm -hmm. it's attachment, like rather than reacting and going to like, okay, I have to do something about this. I have to text them or um, whatever the, the behavior is. It's just letting yourself feel that, that anxiety of like, I'm really scared right now. This is probably coming from, the child in me that was once very afraid and needed my parent to survive. Like that's, that's terrifying to, for that attachment relationship to be threatened. I'm feeling all of that. Um, but I am safe. And so, so to allow yourself the feeling, but also not to exacerbate it, but to come in with that like soothing voice, that like internal mother, I guess, of like, I'm scared. This is very scary, but we've got this. We're okay. Um, and then step four is action. And that's, really making a change to like act differently. Um, so that would be, you know, giving yourself five minutes before you send the message just to try and regulate your nervous system or knowing that you're anxious. And instead of calling a hundred times or doing whatever you need to comfort yourself, you know, having something in your toolbox of like, okay, I'm going to go and do five minutes of meditation, or I'm going to just take myself on a walk, or I'm going to dance, you know, stomp around to music, anything to like channel the feeling into something that's still an action and still moves something forwards, but isn't that like go to response. Um, and then step five is repeat because you, you're not going to do this once. This is going to be a lifetime of work. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I think the repeat part is like critical, mm -hmm. right? Like, and very permission giving to be like, this is something that you will do over and over again. And that's right. That's the, what we're supposed to do. Like that is the process of living is to continue to soothe ourselves and like be curious. And like, that's how things actually change. Yeah. By like being consistently revisiting it. Right. And like, you can't change what triggers you. Like, if something in your present triggers something from your past and you react in a, and you're, you're like feeling all those feelings that are coming from that, like in a child face, you can't change that. That's going to happen beyond your control. But all you can do is try to, you know, make different choices about how you respond to that trigger, um, which is so hard to do because you've been 
you're responding from an adaptation and a coping mechanism, right? Like attachment is a, is an adaptation. So it feels like the right thing to do. Um, but it's challenging that and like very slowly trying to figure out a different way of responding. Yes. Can you talk more about this idea that like attachment is actually an adaptation? Cause I think that's a very, very valuable thing for people to wrap their heads around. Yeah, of course. Um, I guess babies are completely dependent upon their parents for survival. Um, right. So they're, they're helpless. They'll die without their parents. And that means that the relationship they have with their parents, the attachment is essential for them to, to live. And therefore they're very adept, um, at making sure that their parents stay connected to them and that they, you know, they're very cute. They've got big eyes. They, this is all to attract their parent and they continue to evolve as they grow. Um, adaptations to making sure that their parent is interested in them so I guess a securely attached baby wouldn't need to really change their behavior as much because their parents are mostly emotionally and physically present whereas an anxiously attached baby would have learned at some point that the the attention the love the emotional presence they're getting is inconsistent so sometimes they're really present and sometimes they're not and when they're not the baby has learned okay if I cry if I up the ante if I cling if I do these certain things then I get their attention back and so they've learned that their anxiety is actually really helpful because it secures that attachment relationship um, so yeah, they've like adapted to their environment and then the avoidant, the classical avoidant baby has adapted one step further by, you know, if they're crying and crying and they're not being met, that's so terribly disappointing that they learn to just soothe themselves in a kind of hyper independent, I don't need anyone. I don't even cry kind of way. Um, of course they do, they're completely dependent and they do have needs, but they just shut down because it's too painful to be crying and to not be responded to. So again, they're actually adapting to their circumstances. Mm -hmm. And then as circumstances change, like as new relationships come into that, that growing person's world, like maybe in adolescence, it's peers. And then later adolescence, early adulthood, it's romantic partners and like young adulthood to late adulthood. It's, you know, maybe a life partner and then it's, a child so then the cycle starts all over again like exactly. I think there's yeah it it goes on and on and on yeah exactly and we're always I think we're always evolving and growing um which I think you know it's so important for people to know that attachment can change that we can work on it it can be different with different people in in the moment um that if, you know if if I I'm in a conversation with someone very avoidant who's blanking me and isn't interested in me, I'm going to get really anxious. And if I'm in a conversation with someone really anxious, who's really like, Hey, how are you? And you know, what are you doing? And too much, I'm going to become more avoidant. So it's not fixed. It's just kind of dynamic. And I think people hold on to their attachment styles. Like this is who I am as a person, but actually it can be in complete flux depending on who we're in relationship with. Yes. No, that's a very good point. I think that comes up a lot in the work I do with people are like, you know, they, they sort of, and, and very rarely do people actually know what their attachment style is. Like, it's not like that is something that people really can like, I don't know. I, I would be curious. I don't actually know the data on this. Maybe you do, but like how many like people sort of self identify as a particular style, if they were actually like given the AAI, like the adult attachment inventory, would it be accurately matched to the thing they think they are? Cause I actually think 
like Bethany Saltman talks about this in her book, The Strange Situation, which uh, is like an amazing book. It's like a memoir, but also like the history of Mary Ainsworth's attachment, like research in The Strange Situation. But it's a, you know, it's as a mother, she's worried. I don't think I have a secure attachment. And she does all this work. She goes and Alan Struff like gives her the AAI in real life um, is part of her research for this book. And she, she's like found, finds that she is in fact securely attached or has a secure attachment style based on the AAI. Right. So like, I don't know that we actually are very good, um, accurate diagnosticians of our own attachment style. Do you find that in the work that you do that you're like, yeah, I think people, I, I think it really depends on the person. Some, I mean, I think anxiously attached people know that they're anxiously attached in a way because they feel constant anxiety and they can't tolerate distance and like the symptoms are really clear. I would say avoidant people are less good at knowing they're avoidant. Um, Mm -hmm. when you're avoiding, yeah, you're not really in touch with yourself. You're like, everything is, you know, someone else is just too much. Um, so yeah. And I imagine like thinking about that example, that a lot of early mothers will be really worried that they have an insecure attachment and they're going to pass that on to their children and, you know, diagnose themselves and do all the tests and, Oh no, I'm anxiously attached. Like, am I going to mess up my child? But I guess it's something, it's a tool to use to help your self-awareness, not to shame yourself with. And if you have an insecure attachment, that doesn't mean that you're going to be a terrible mother, you know? Right. And, and then to your point earlier, like it's one, it's, it's not this fixed thing that I am at all times, like depending on who I'm with and how secure that person makes me feel, um, the more secure I'm going to be able to show up in that relationship, period. Like if I have, if I feel safe with someone, my attachment systems are not likely to get activated. Um, They might, right? If we have a really deeply ingrained, you know, response, threat response that like we had to really, like that adaptation you talked about at the beginning, like early in life was, had to be very, very, very profound um, because we were so misattuned by, to, by our parents or whatever, or whoever was taking care of us, then it would be harder. I think even if you were in a relationship where someone is making you feel objectively secure to be able to not show up insecurely. Right. But I think the vast majority of people is somewhere in the middle of that bell curve, right? Like we all have relationships where our more insecure side is going to show up Mm -hmm. um, or our more secure parts will of us will show up. And so I think people do have a, like, I think people have a, there's a, a big myth about attachment that it's, it's this, it's a fixed thing across all relationships yeah, or I that mean, it can't change over time. I always say like the best way to change your attachment style to being more secure is to be with a secure partner. That mm-hmm. Like that's how you are able to be vulnerable and feel safe and work through the anxieties or the avoidance. Like if you have a partner who is doing the work, who can hold you, who's attuned to you, like that's, I think, and I write about this in the book as well, that like we heal in relationship to others. That often people are like, I'm so happy when I'm single and I'm so miserable in a relationship. And I would say that's because they're like not being triggered 
when they're single but that's also not really healing it, it the healing is in being triggered and staying and repairing and working through whatever's mm-hmm. coming up for you and so not that you have to be in a relationship to heal of course but I think that's why therapy really works because it's a relationship where you can kind of have ruptures have repairs work through things learn to be vulnerable in like a safe space where you can reflect and grow from it yeah I mean I totally agree with you I'm like the way that I practice therapies from a very relational model which is very much this idea like I think you and I have that in common like this idea that the the therapeutic relationship may be the first for many people where they're they have this other person that that allows them to both feel safe, but reflect on what makes them feel unsafe. Um, Do you, yeah. Can you talk to that piece a little bit more? Like if someone is doing therapy or is considering doing therapy, like they're recognizing, okay, I have, I have challenges in relationships, you know, or I'm a mother or a father and I'm worried that I'm going to have challenges in, or I'm worried about helping my child develop a secure attachment, right? How do I be that secure person, that secure base for my child if it, I didn't receive that when I was a kid? And they're thinking about going to therapy. Like, There's lots of different kinds of therapy and lots of different things that therapies treat. But I do think if you are looking to address attachment wounds, that like a relational model would be a really useful way to go. And like, I'm just curious, like, what you, any thoughts you have for people who are considering therapy and what they could what what questions they might want to be asking themselves yeah definitely I guess people always talk about you know parents needing a space for themselves outside of just being a parent and in a way therapy is like a really ideal place for that not just to have me time but also to have their own secure base because they're going to be triggered I'm I'm assuming um it's going to be like it's going to be a time where all of your attachment wounds everything is coming up your stress you're tired um and to have a place where you are you have you're with someone who is more regulated I read a quote um I think it was Laurie Gottlieb saying that therapy is essentially just paying someone to sit in a room with a a regulated nervous system um (laughs) And I think the idea of just being someone who holds a space for you that is calm with no shame, where you can bring all of your like dark thoughts and difficult thoughts and with no judgment and just be able to be accepted by them and accept yourself. Um, yes, my, like in the book, I talk about ther- my own experience of being in therapy and like how important it is to have someone who can bear witness to your pain and your suffering and just that alone um you know the modality of therapy is important but really what what you want is someone who can bear witness to you and hold you and accept you as you are and that just removes shame that's like the antidote to shame is having someone Mm -hmm. being like okay like you've told me that you've shown me that like really dark side of you or you've told me that unbearable thought or you've cried for 50 minutes in front of me and like I'm still here that is the secure yeah. base. It's like, I'm not going anywhere. You can show me your worst self and I'll still be here for you. Um, and I think that's like so heaving. Yeah. I mean, it's the end. It's like the antithesis of what, like you were describing when you were describing like the attachment styles and how they kind of evolve, right. As an adaptation to one's environment. You know, if you have a secure figure as a parent, and it doesn't mean that no one will ever have an insecure attachment if their parent was not w- with with a secure parent. Like, right? Like, we can't just 
I don't want this to come across as like parent blaming, right? It's not like parents necessarily mean to misattune to their kid. You could have a parent who has like the absolute best intentions and loves their child so much, but it's like the, it's this tricky intergenerational like passing down, right? If you, it's like so many, um, like layers and layers and layers of this. Mm -hmm. But so if you have a parent who wasn't able to attune to that child in the way they needed it, right? Um, And the child adapts and learns to either, you know, get very, very, very loud and clingy and anxious or gets very, very sort of avoidant and shuts down their need for that parent. You, the therapist, like fast forward to the future, that person's in therapy and they're working with a person who's sitting there and no matter what they bring, the therapist can hold space for it it's like you're kind of undoing the learned experience of the, or like the original learned experience. Right. And like, I, I will often describe attachment, like especially with our earliest care providers as like, it's a blueprint, right? It's like a blueprint that we then use throughout life to like imagine and anticipate how we can, we'll guess other people will respond to us. Mm-hmm. And over time, later experiences with people that either confirm or disconfirm what the blueprint set, sort of lays out when we want to edit that blueprint. And the problem is, is like, if you're not aware of this, even if you have an interaction with someone who is super, feels super safe to you, um, if you don't log that sort of and say, oh, that's different, that I need to edit my blueprint. Maybe not everyone is dangerous. Not everyone is going to make me feel embarrassed or ashamed or alone. Um, then I have to go in and I have to actually edit that blueprint so that I can modify the way I engage with the world. And so I think while therapy is amazing because it offers that safe person, it also offers that opportunity to like talk about that process of having a really messy feeling in the presence of a safe person and then looking and reflecting on like, how did that feel? How does that change your understanding of how safe it is to have that feeling and how safe other people can be? Like, how do you edit the blueprint now? Um, yeah. And it's all, I think it's all through experience. As you, as you've said, like having an experience of being in a relationship, I mean, like even the therapeutic relationship with someone who is, secure and who is attuned changes your internal like your blueprint and also your beliefs about what's possible for you you're like oh mm-hmm. someone can bear me somebody can be there for me somebody can show up for me and I think if you really solidify that experience what I see often is it's only after having that kind of like deep therapeutic relationship that people then go and choose secure partners and end up in the kinds of relationships they want to be in because they've like changed yeah their blueprint and also what the blueprint means about them they're like oh I am lovable because I felt like loved or therapeutically loved by this person and therefore they then go out and find people who treat them in the way that they want and you know um can can attune and can show up on all of those things so I think that's how transformative like that therapeutic relationship can really be yeah yeah and even if you are in relationship with someone who doesn't help you to feel as secure um, and you do that sort of therapeutic work of developing sort of a a different set of expectations for how you want to be treated. 
I think oftentimes then I see people then go into couples therapy, right? Or like, you know, it's like, we want to save this relationship. There's something here to work with. It's not like, you know, it's not like I'm thinking of a situation where like, maybe you're like in an abusive relationship and you need to kind of realize that and find a way to get out of that. But I'm, but I think that's such a, that's, that's only one, that's a very sort of extreme version of an example. Like I think a lot of people may have insecure qualities to their relationship with their partner, but ultimately really want to be with that person. And it's, they've built a life together. They are building a family together, or maybe they've already built a family together. And there, but that awareness of these, these patterns and your own blueprint then allows you to kind of do that same work with your partner. Can your partner identify their blueprint? Can you figure out the ways in which maybe you guys inadvertently might be activating each other's less adaptive threat, you know, attachment systems. And how do you repair that? Do you ever work with couples in that way? No, I only work, I don't work with couples. Um, but something I'm definitely interested in, but it made me think of a quote, um, by Dr. Nicole, the pair, the holistic psychologist, she says like the sixth love language is knowing your partner's trauma and like taking that and being sensitive with it. And I do, I think, I think mm-hmm. couples therapy or two people in individual therapy, like who know themselves and they can say like, this is the way that I'm triggered. How can we be sensitive of that? And I'm going to mess up and I'm going to shout at you when I, when I'm overwhelmed and like, how can you help me with that? And I think that's such, such a beautiful kind of relationship to be in where two people are, are aware of their flaws and trying actively to change them, but also like asking for help and being sensitive to the other person. Yeah. And I think, you know, if for, I keep saying how it's all kind of connected because it's, you know, how we were parented mm-hmm. has such a huge impact on our attachment systems which then have a huge impact on how we parent, Mm. which has a huge impact on our child's attachment systems and so on and so on forever and for always. So this idea that we can actively sort of address our own attachment challenges in our relationship while we're parenting. Mm. And if our child can even like, whether they're actively aware of that or just receiving the benefits of that, it can change an entire trajectory right yeah and people talk a lot about being being able to like um like understand and explain even to your child like where what like where you're coming from and how you're trying to grow and how you're trying to repair and like modeling reparation I think that can also happen within your relationship um and like always being aware of how your childhood impacted you, um, but also not having that as like, um, okay, that's exactly what I'm going to do. I think a lot of people have that fear, right? Of like, I'm going to, because I have an insecure attachment, I'm going to mess up my child or because I was traumatized, I'm going to pass that on. And I think that's such a classic fear of people who've been through trauma of like, I'm, I'm forever, you know, I'm bad on the inside and like Mm -hmm. I'm messed up forever. But I think actually just even being aware of, your past is, you know, you're like, you're probably in the 1% of people who are actually really reflecting on who they are as a parent and where they Mm -hmm. come from. And like, I think people need to not use all of this theory to beat themselves up with and to shame themselves and to have so much fear because the theory is there um, to help us and to help us improve and grow and like, yeah, give ourselves a break. Yeah, definitely need to give ourselves a break for sure. (laughs) You talked about 
um, the this like our internal mother, like being our own internal mother mm. or parent, you know, can you talk more about that and like some of the ways that you might help people kind of become aware of their inner dialogue and maybe shift it? Yeah, absolutely. I guess the first thing is that we can't to really accept. And I think people really struggle. It's, it's a huge point of pain in therapy is like to really accept that you can't redo your childhood. So reparenting like is, it has its limits. Like you have to grieve for what you didn't get and for this like perfect mother that you probably didn't have. Um, so it's like, it's understanding that you can't, you're not going to be able to reverse the past, but you can introduce into your internal world and your like your parts of yourself um like a compassionate caring mother figure who's the person who has your back and who also sets boundaries because they're looking out for your well-being and um speaks up and it's like I guess the archetype of like yeah the um the kind of feminine who is like fierce and powerful but also warm and compassionate and loving of which we all have inside of us um I guess for people who had didn't have that experience of their own mother it will take a bit more work to like really grow that part of yourself um so I think if you're triggered if you're you know annoyed with yourself if you're feeling the limitations of yourself or your flaws um rather than being coming in with such harsh criticism it's like being aware of that critical voice and I have a whole chapter on the critical voice in my book because it's just so universal it's like being aware of Mm -hmm. the critical voice being aware that that critical voice is probably trying to help you and protect you in some way and then introducing um this compassionate voice this wise voice or this like internal mother and I think that can be a real help to just drown out the like intense criticisms that we berate ourselves with on a daily basis of okay this is what my critical part is saying but like what's my loving part saying and what is what is my vulnerable inner child need right now and even asking that question that's coming from the inner mother it's like how how can I look after myself what would I need like what's like a soft and tender um thing I can give myself that's actually probably going to help a lot more than the the criticisms yeah that's so beautiful and I think having worked with a lot of mothers, like especially new mothers, like, and many who don't have a secure experience, you know, with of attachment with their parent growing up, like at first they don't really, they can't imagine having that voice. Like they're like, they don't believe that they have it and being a mother and having to navigate all of the anxieties that come just naturally with having a baby and having a small child and wanting to do it right. Um, there's so much fear. And so that critical voice gets really, really, really loud and activated all the time. And I think I've seen the most incredible evolution in women and and dads, frankly, too. I think this is really true for dads too, but, um, something about as they start to become a parent and they start to use their own natural, like loving voice Mm -hmm. to their child, they can start to recognize like, how would I speak to myself? Like if I, in the, my most secure moments with my kid who is distressed, I just instinctively do know how to soothe them. Not always. If I'm super triggered, I don't, right? We don't always show up as our best parenting selves, but there are moments where you just are like intuitively and instinctively able to like 
give your child exactly what they need to hear and you know it, like you really know it. And then I think those experiences can often be like reflected on to be like, how would that part of you talk to yourself? Mm. You know, and that is usually a big aha moment for parents. They're like, ah, okay, I found it. I know who I have to kind of call upon to mother myself, right? That internal voice. It's it's there. It's just that we don't always trust that we have it, but then you see yourself doing it with your child and you're like, oh, that's the voice. Yeah, no, I can do that. I love that, that as you're learning to mother your child, you're also learning to mother yourself. And that like the more you nurture another life, the more you're also able to nurture yourself. So like, yeah, yeah. a lot of people are worried about that intuition not being there if they've come from not having their own parents who were good enough. Um, but I think it's it's nice to think that it exists in everyone and actually it's like a muscle and the more you tune into it and trust it, the bigger it grows and then the more you're able to identify your own needs and your own feelings. So yeah, I think that's really lovely. Yeah, I think there's something sort of magical about becoming a parent in that respect because I think it gives us the it forces us to do things that we didn't think we could do and then in doing them we're like oh, I have that challenges my belief that I don't have this intuition because what it just flows out of us time, at times. Like I I think sometimes it doesn't it doesn't feel like it's there at all for sure but sometimes it's just like like words come out of your mouth and you're like how did i do that like how, where did that come from you're like that was a good parenting moment like yeah and then you're like oh wait so maybe i can do this and it is in me somewhere right mm-hmm. i think that's a beautiful like seeing parents become confident in that is like my one of my favorite things about my job for sure I'm curious, like with your work, like what are some of those moments for you where you're like, you see this like light bulb go off for one of your, your clients and you're like, okay, we, we, we did something really important here. Um, I, I guess people like making genuine change. Um, mm-hmm. I think when, or when somebody like, it's funny, people always ask when you're a therapist, like, oh, isn't it so hard like you have to sit with people and they're going through all this stuff. It's such a burden. And actually, like, I think the moment that someone accesses their pain and becomes conscious to what's been in their unconscious, like the, the suffering and the pain and the crying and the grief and the anger, like when someone experiences and is like brave enough to be vulnerable with me, um, something for the first time that they've not even been aware is there. I think that's like so moving and it's actually, yeah, it's like, it makes you think, Oh, this job is actually a privilege, you know, that I get to be there and I get to help someone go through that. Um, so yeah, rather than it being like so difficult, um, it's actually the part of the work that I think is the most rewarding. Yeah, I can, I really relate to that. It's, it's, it's funny. It is, it's like being able to be someone's secure base and then feeling there's, it's a like secure attachment. Attachment relationships like a two way street, right? Like, so as a therapist, when you're sort of at, in that role of that secure base and someone is showing you how much they trust you to be able to just let it out and not be, you know, 
nice, you know, can't see my air quotes, but like, you know, like put together and articulate and, you know, but just raw, messy, real, vulnerable. It's like kind of like that parent-child relationship, right? Like if a child really feels super safe to just let it all out and just be a hot mess and that parent is like, gosh, you must really trust me. Thank you. And like to receive that is a reinforcing of that security, right? So like to be that secure base is like part of the, it's just, if it's a, tr- such a mutual trust, right? Like if mm. it's, it's a gift for sure. I agree. Absolutely. And yeah, like I think, I guess British people are maybe slightly different from American people are like much more repressed. So I think it's a lot harder to, I'm speaking from my own experience of therapy, like it's a lot harder to let yourself open in front of somebody when Mm -hmm. we're told in our cultural messaging, like no emotions. Um, so, so it's, it's extra, um, yeah, you have to really feel safe with someone to let yourself go there because it feels like the scariest thing in the world. But yeah, anyone in therapy doing that right now, like I've been there and I, absolutely salute you because it's it's so hard yeah I've never thought about that I mean I I mean I know the sort of trope of like the stiff upper lip of the British but Mm -hmm. like what what messages do you feel like are getting do you feel like that's getting shifted at all like what are you noticing culturally for you know repressed emotions (laughs) there's definitely yeah the the stigma against therapy and mental health is definitely shifting um but we're probably a a good few years behind you guys in terms of your like openness and ability to express feelings um especially for men i guess it's even harder like british men are very um they're getting a lot of messages to be strong and masculine and not to open up yeah it's interesting. I wonder too, because because of the way the the sort of the medium of a lot of your like psychoeducational material, like obviously you do therapy and it's therapy, and you know TikTok is isn't therapy. And also, I think you are like you said at the beginning, like you're really trying to. You're like there are people here in this space, in these social media spaces that are looking to consume information that helps them to grow and helps them to gain insight and learn these, you know, some of this stuff is like learn the theory, but also kind of see examples of how it applies to them to like open their minds and, and like ways of talking about it with others. Right. And capturing the nuance. Cause that's, I think there's an art there. Cause I agree with you. Like I also am like, was very disillusioned by the stuff I would see on social media in terms of like content around, you know, psychology and parenting and development. And I was like, Oh, this is some of, some of it's fantastic. And some of it is not good. Like disturbingly. So do you feel like this is changing some of that too, though? Like in a good way, like the good stuff, like stuff that's really helping people to be like, okay, I grew up in a family that would never in a million years go to therapy and everyone really like, you know, looks at, like is like, that is not, you know, that we don't do that here. You know, we're, that's like, they've, they've got the stigma against it. They've, it feels inaccessible to them for whatever reason. And then to be exposed to this, because they're finding it somewhere where they're not necessarily know they're looking for it. Right. And 
are you seeing, do you think that might be impacting the openness to it? Like, yeah, I think so. I think especially in like the younger generation, people are, you know, I think previously you had to spend just the first two years of therapy, just convincing someone that their childhood affected them. Whereas now people are coming (laughs) in and they're like, right, this is my attachment style. This happened. Like they're really prepared and open to talk about it because they, I think probably from consuming a lot of the information online that they're, that it's just much more in the rhetoric that like your childhood had an impact on you. We have an unconscious that is kind of often in conflict with our conscious. We have feelings that we're not feeling like even just knowing those things means that you're like well equipped when you come to therapy to kind of know what it's about. And there's maybe less resistant to talking about the past or to, you know, opening mm-hmm. up um, compared to people who, like yeah who don't know any of that and they're just like why are you even asking me how I feel <laughs> right yeah no it's true which probably saves them tons of money <laughs> in therapy bills because you can jump right to the middle <laughs> instead of like having to do a lot of like orienting <laughs> but I, I also imagine like there's um it's challenging to capture the nuance like I think there, there's it's a double-edged sword right like it gets people to know about it and gets their foot in the door perhaps, but it's also like, I think it's, it's hard to capture that nuance. Yeah. And I would say that people often come in with lots of labels and like they've already diagnosed and they already know exactly why, what their symptoms are and and that can actually foreclose some exploration and some curiosity and um, yeah, some like some of the, the things that they don't know and that they learn about themselves rather than coming up with really fixed ideas. So there's pros and cons, I think, to the Instagram therapy world. But really, I think it's amazing that this many, that's in the norm that we're all talking about mental health and childhood and attachment. And that, that can only be a good thing, I think. I agree. And people want to get a copy of your book. It's out today. So that's super exciting. Where can they, where can they find your book? Where can they connect with you? Yeah, so the book will be on Amazon and anywhere you get your books. Um, and they can connect with me on Instagram at your underscore pocket underscore therapist and the same for TikTok. Amazing. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It's been so nice talking to you. Thanks so much for listening. If you are interested in learning more about attachment science, check out my free guide, The Four Pillars of Fostering Secure Attachment. In this guide, I teach you how to use the principles of attachment science to help you parent with attunement and trust. By focusing on four simple things, you can work towards helping your child form a secure attachment bond, which is a predictor of so many positive aspects of mental health, including self-esteem, independence, healthier relationships with others throughout their lifespan, better academic and workplace achievement, and lower reported instances of anxiety and depression. Not a small list. (laughs) So to download this free guide and learn the four pillars of fostering secure attachment, go to drsarahbren.com forward slash secure. That's drsarahbren.com forward slash secure. And until next time, don't be a stranger.